Hello, Bloodstream listeners. Host Patrick here. We have an outstanding Rare Disease Day 2023 episode in store for you today. But before diving into the content that we had planned for today, I have something really special, really important, and really timely to share with you first. For the last few years, the hemophilia community in the United Kingdom has been going through a formal inquiry into the contaminated blood scandal that resulted in thousands of people with bleeding disorders acquiring hepatitis C and or HIV through contaminated blood products, the blood contamination crisis, or as my friends in the UK may refer to it, the contaminated blood scandal. And according to the contaminated blood scandal in the United Kingdom Wikipedia page, because there is one, no government, healthcare, or pharmaceutical entity in the United Kingdom has admitted any liability in the scandal. Clive Smith, a fellow blood brother, is the chair of the UK Hemophilia Society. He has been a vocal and visible leader for the community throughout the inquiry, appearing in news media and public interviews on numerous occasions, helping the general public appreciate what's going on. Well, just last week, and I am recording this, it is right now 3.01. It just turned 3.01 Pacific on Tuesday, February 21st. Well, last week, while Believe Limited, which is Bloodstream Media's parent company, had a crew in London, we connected with Clive and asked if he would provide an update for you all into the inquiry that we could share here on Bloodstream. Generously, Clive agreed. And now, for those of you watching the podcast on YouTube or Facebook, you will now hear and see Clive's statement on the conclusion of the inquiry. And traditional podcast listeners, my people, you'll hear Clive's remarks. Bloodstream Media has also published this short video statement from Clive as a piece of breakout content on our social media channels if you would like to see and share Clive's message with your network. And without further ado, here is Clive Smith's message. The Infected Blood Inquiry was announced in 2017 here in the United Kingdom after decades of campaigning. And it came to a close after four and a half years of evidence um, last week here in London. Um, it's heard from thousands of witnesses. It's uncovered thousands, I think over a million documents. Um, and it's been an incredibly important moment for our community. I think not just here in the UK, but across the world. For, for too long, we've been looking back at what went wrong and what happened, and it's not enabled us to look forward as much as we would like to. It's cast a very long shadow, and it was a huge milestone when it eventually came to an end in terms of hearing evidence last week. Um, it's due to report in, in autumn of this year, and we await what the chair, Sir Brian Langstaff, who is a retired judge, um, has to say. Um, but in the meantime, there's still work for us to be doing because the government commissioned a compensation study and last year um, for those who were infected and who are still alive, they all received £100,000 in interim compensation. But the report that government commissioned goes further than that in terms of recommending compensation, not just to those who are infected, but to those who were affected, so parents who lost children, children who lost parents, for example. Um, and also carers as well. Many people gave up their lives, their careers to care for people because so many people died away from the cameras um, not wanting to talk about their infections because of the fear of stigma. And then the lies that were perpetuated to their families about the fact that they died of something other than hepatitis C or HIV, for example. 
So overall, the inquiry has been incredibly cathartic because for many, they will never receive justice. But unlike something like 9-11, where everybody knows what it was and how many people died, it's really difficult to explain in a couple of minutes what happened as a result of contaminated blood in the UK and across the world. And for so many, justice for them is simply being heard and being acknowledged. And that's what the inqu this inquiry's done. It's given those people a voice. It's given them the, that, the recognition of what they suffered. Um, and so we await the recommendations of, of the inquiry. Um, there are high expectations. I don't say that lightly. The chair of the inquiry has been an incredibly compassionate man, um, as you'll appreciate usually when you come in and out of court for, for a judge you know everybody stands up and sits down for example but right at the start he said don't stand up when I come in he's just been so approachable throughout very compassionate very humane which meant on the last day when he came in um, everybody stood up for him and gave him a round of applause which I think he was genuinely taken aback by but he's he's built trust which is a really difficult thing to do with a damaged community um, but he's achieved that along with his team and the legal team as well. And we knew here in the UK that this was our last chance. We've had two previous inquiries here, but we knew this really was our last chance to get it right. And I think the chair has got it right, hence why there are high expectations. And we do expect another interim recommendation from him before Easter, which should result in government having to pay further compensation for all those who've been suffered as a result of this tragedy. I could comment on Clive's remarks at length, but I've been challenging myself to put a fine point on this for now. And here it is. Blood contamination is not a story of the past. As some, including some in the pharmaceutical industry, have said to me recently. The warnings and lessons learned from the contamination crisis, the contaminated blood scandal, are not of the past, without relevancy or the need to even mention the existence of in present time, contaminated blood products killed tens of thousands of people around the world. And maybe more. We'll never know. Not the full impact. The victims of that catastrophe? They're still with us. Not all. Not most. But some. They are not part of history. They are here. Now. 2023, as are their spouses, their children, and their loved ones. So as we celebrate gene therapies' recent approvals, other therapies being made available to people, as we anticipate the great future for people affected by hemophilia, the success stories and headlines that are to come, as we celebrate Rare Disease Day, the awareness raised, the policies advanced, the scientific discoveries, let us never forget the fuller picture and the pain and suffering that so many people in the hemophilia community have faced and continue to face for numerous reasons, lest we forget. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. 
Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Borb, reminding you to please speak to a treatment professional before making any treatment decisions. That is a treatment professional. We call them medical professionals, healthcare professionals, PCPs. They're all the same thing. We have so many words to describe the same thing, but that is not what we're here to talk about. We are here to talk about, on today's show, Rare Disease Day, Ugh. Feb 28th, the last day of February, the 28th, yes. three out of four years in a row anyway. Yeah. Uh, that's Rare Disease Day. We'll talk about Rare Disease Day, what it is and what it means to us. We also have another interview from James Maple in our installment in honor of Black History Month, this time with Bleeding Disorders community member Mirai Johnson. Plus, we've got the latest installment of Let's Talk, our mental health segment, where today Joshua Sterling Bragg takes us through what it means to live in the almost. Great title. We've got all that and more coming up on this episode. Welcome to Bloodstream. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and me here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media. We have our own LinkedIn page. Wow. We made it. Bloodstream Media LinkedIn page. Huge. Give us a follow. They grow up so fast, don't they? <laughs> Them brands. Hmm. It was just yesterday. And listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is indeed made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, mm -hmm. where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, Amy Board. Which I do as well. And they are dedicated now more than ever in their commitment to provide a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on their journey they, they may, may be. be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, though you probably don't need it. That's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream <laughs> Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Rare Disease Day, Amy Oh, Board. I love Rare Disease 2023. Day. 2023. So Rare Disease Day is a, a day that is intended to help honor and recognize, increase awareness of rare diseases, but in that to help improve access, to help improve access to treatments and other uh, forms of healthcare delivery, healthcare services, and to encourage the increased medical representation for individuals with rare and ultra-rare diseases and their families. Because as we know, rare diseases don't just affect a single patient, they, they affect an entire family unit. So that's the idea of the day. I believe it was 2008, if mm -hmm. you go on Wikipedia, mm -hmm. where it was first formally recognized as Rare Disease Day. And of course, if you go to rarediseaseday.org, you can see what, what um, sort of the official Rare Disease Day observances and slogans and ideas are. Different entities are doing different things for Rare Disease Day. But for you, Amy Board, what are you thinking about Rare Disease Day 2020? You know, I always love a day. I love I love a day. Love an awareness day. Um, I think it's really important. I think a lot of people can poo-poo it because now we have so many days. Sure. But I always told my families um, in Colorado when I was uh, serving at the chapter there that um, in particular for, you know, Bleeding Disorders Awareness Month, but I think more for our walks, um, which is kind of, you know, circled back into like an awareness campaign a little bit, is this is a chance to tell your story. And you don't get the opportunity to. A lot of people don't ask because if you don't know, you don't ask. Sure. And it's just another 
another chance to have people know, another chance for people to um, hear about it, for you to share, to share different aspects of it. And that's what I really think um, Rare Disease Day is is for and it's lovely because having a rare disease, a rare genetic disease and an ultra rare disease is so largely invisible. We just don't see it. We don't see the struggle and it's important for you to be known. And it's also important to see um, as much as as it is, um, you know, small numbers, really, it, it's not when, when everybody kind of like bands together on a day like rare disease day. And it's lovely, I think, to feel... Um, a part of something and a part of that family. Rare diseases are those that affect fewer than one in 200,000 people, but in totality, rare diseases affect one in 10 people. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, not just that patient, but that patient's family, that yes. patient's loved ones, yes. rare diseases affect nearly everyone. Yes. So this idea that it's rare is really quite a misnomer. But to your point, Amy, <laughs> because each of them individually are rare, and so many of them are invisible. There may not necessarily be physical signs, yeah. certainly not you know, clear physical expressions of what exactly is going on. Uh, there aren't the invitations to yeah. tell the story, to share the lived experience, and through that to connect with others. Yes. Because for me, that's what comes to mind is the connecting with others. When I think about growing up with hemophilia as a rare disease, but going to camp and meeting people with all kinds of other conditions and realizing as a very young child, wow, there's a whole range of things that you can be born with and then social circumstances you can be born into as we start chatting about not just the conditions that brought us to camp, yeah. but our home lives, what yeah. life at school and what our friend groups, how the, how the disease interacted with it or not. Just that connection, those connections, they meant a tremendous amount to me. And I talked a lot, I've talked a lot over the years about those five days in a breakfast every summer where I get to spend time with other kids with other rare diseases. Those are the most important five days of the year. Yes. So in thinking about our chance to chat about Rare Disease Day today, I was thinking what, what comes really most to mind? To me, what's most important? What's most important to me are making the connections to other people who share some amount of your lived experience, either as a patient or as a caregiver, to know who your community is because, and, and we've said this time and time again, you may not have a particular need right now. Mm-hmm. But chances are, if you or a loved one in your house are living with a rare disease, there will come moments in time and seasons in your life where the need for support, the need for resources, the need for community is there. That's not the best time to have to find where community, to find where support. You should know where those things are at the time you need them, just like we want to know where the fire extinguisher is in the kitchen before we have to use it. Same concept. So... I encourage those listening, use today, use Rare Disease Day, which is on the 28th. If you're listening in real time, you have a few more days to prepare your (laughs) Rare Disease Day activity. But use the opportunity, use the invitation to tell your story, to connect with the stories of others, and to maybe find a little bit more community than you had before Rare Disease Day this year. Oh, I love that. Um, Our friend and uh, co-podcast host Effie Parks posted this wonderful thread on Twitter last night, I believe, about um, rare disease caretakers and, you know, her her call to rare disease caretakers, moms, parents, grandparents, caretakers. Um, and it ended with, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It ended with, um, this community is a joy. Th- there will be joy found here. Mm. And 
I just loved that because we think of the struggle all the time. And I think there is a joy of being known in this place. And here we are more connected than ever because of social media and all the things. And I just do believe in that so deeply that there is joy in community and there is joy in being known in that way. And if you don't feel comfortable sharing your story yet, no big deal. So many people do. And I loved your call, Patrick, to connect with others. Even if it's a small direct message like this really resonated with me, I experienced the same thing. It, it, is, it is a joy, an absolute joy to have community Yes. It is a thing. Here, here. Well, speaking of community, we'll now go over to James Maple. His latest interview in honor of Black History Month is with community member Mariah Johnson. Hello, Bloodstream audience. It is your new best friend and Bloodstream correspondent, James Maple, here with a very special interview. We have Miss Mari Johnson. Hello. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. Great, great. Uh, if you could tell us a bit about you, about um, your connection to the bleeding disorders community as well. Uh, so I'm a mom um, of two children that are severe uh, hemophilia A, and my father also is severe with hemophilia A, and I'm an, a carrier. Um, I've been volunteering in the community with my local and national chapter um, for more than 20 years. Great, great. So you said you had two kids with bleeding disorders, severe uh, heme They're A? both severe heme A. Yes. Severe heme A. Um, and are the kids, uh, your boys, the girls? Boys, 13, 21. All right. Okay. I mean, they're like, one was an adult. <laughs> <laughs> Always my baby. I feel you. I, I'll be 36 <laughs> next month, and my mom your still mom calls me her baby. Yeah, she still calls me her baby. So I understand. <laughs> So uh, let's kind of jump into things. Um, what what does uh, Black history mean to you within the bleeding disorders community? Um, so when I think about Black history and this community, I think personally um, what I've seen with my father being an advocate, and he has lived 75 years young as a severe hemophiliac. So just living through those decades uh, is a historical fact that not many people can say that they have had the pleasure of learning about and living through. Um, I've seen him advocate locally in our government, nationally in our government to help pass laws that are still laws and help in our community today. So personally, Black History Month, being a Black American and having my father being the advocate that he's always been has been the best representative that I can say I've experienced. How do you think Black history has evolved um, throughout the years as you as you look back to your experiences with your father and look forward mm -hmm. uh, to the experiences with your children? I just believe that I've been the most fortunate person. My father was raised with his parents and his great grandmother, and my great grandmother lived to her to be ninety four. Her daughter, which is my dad's mother, lived to be in her 70s. And so when I started having my first child, you know, he got to meet both of them until he was two years old. So I had them specifically to look at and to be guiding me to what they dealt with with my father, which was completely different um, than what I've lived through with my then two-year-old. But their guidance, their strength, gave me that same strength and courage to know that they're going to live, they're going to thrive, they're going to be successful, and we can do this as a community. And I think those things are embedded in me 
And once I found other parents that had severe human or any severe bleeding disorder or any bleeding disorder in general, once I met other parents of color, when I went to different meetings and volunteered, you know, them seeing my children, me seeing their older children, those representations in those moments helped me as a parent grow and know we're all doing something right. They're going to be just fine. We're here to lean on each other. So in that local, you know, Black history, I think we help each other evolve. What are some obstacles that you've noticed um, throughout your, I mean, I would say years, but I guess for you, it's been your lifetime of being at least adjacent to the bleeding disorders community. Have you noticed any obstacles specifically for, I I mean, I know these won't be necessarily for you, but again, you're so adjacent to it for Black Mm -hmm. men. Or, well, black people in general, but I think your right. your narrow perspective of black men, both past and present, provides us great insight. Do you have um, any insight into like certain obstacles that you face? And if you have, how have you overcome those obstacles? I think having a chronic diagnosis and a rare diagnosis in general um, are both two factors that always. Um, when it comes to communication, there's always a barrier um, because there's lack of education about the rare diagnosis. So I think uh, one big barrier is always the lack of knowledge, like for our professionals that we come in contact with. Maybe not our specific, like the hematologist, but for example, um, I always try to talk about when my youngest, my oldest son was born, no, my youngest son, when he was born, even though they had the information, I'm a carrier, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that he can have a bleeding disorder. The the pregnancy was successful. The delivery was successful. He still got a heel stick in the hospital and bled for three days. You know, that took the power out of our family of trying to control when he can have to have like factor or any other product to help control his bleeding. That took that power away from us and put his life at risk in that moment. So the lack of education of some health professions is, I think, always going to continue to be a barrier when you have a rare disorder. I'm curious to know this, too. This is this is not, not in our question set, but. I've realized this in another capacity uh, of some, another project we're working on. Have you ever encountered um, this? This came up when we were doing a documentary on Black maternal health, and it's mm-hmm. come up quite a bit that Black women their their pain threshold is oftentimes not taken seriously. Exactly. And I've mentioned this to Mosey Williams, who's another brother in the bleeding disorders community, and mm-hmm. he just organically mentioned that to me. And I put those two things together. I'm like, okay, so this is not just a black woman thing and not, you know, just a black man thing. I'm curious to know, have you experienced anything like that where, you know, anything you say to a a physician or HTC, anybody really is not taken seriously. It's taken out of context. You're not believed. Have you ever encountered anything like that? I think it happens. I have a very specific situation that just happened. And, and I know that when it comes to pain um, as a professional, there are, already some walls built up because of the the epidemics that are going on in the world of people being addicted to the medications that can help us. So me as a Black woman, in my experiences, I haven't had any, as far as pain, because I haven't had many surgeries, I haven't had any experiences in that. But being, like you say, being adjacent to it, 
Um, and my father being a recipient of multiple um, joint replacements, that is like a number one issue. With coming in the hospital, you get, um, and, and we've evolved, you know, he's had multiple joint replacements from the 80s to yeah, three days ago. Okay. <laughs> Literally. Very um, recent. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, I know the history of you started with a PCA pump and then you got tapered to a pill or IV push and then you got tapered to a pill so you could go home. All well and good. But now you've just had a major bone surgery from a previous replacement that has been problematic, which is why now you need it replaced again. Um, so obviously there was some pre-pain, pre-surgery pain, the regular pain that comes with your surgery because you have a surgical site and now you're trying to heal and do physical therapy and start your healing process. And there is, and my father has such a strong threshold for pain as himself. I can't speak for anyone else. Um, but what happens is they want to give him one pill, start him off post-op with a pill, right? Post-op. You just had a whole replacement of a joint. Um, and that is just barbaric because in four more hours when he's sleep, because he's also exhausted from anesthesia and everything else that's been going on with his body, and maybe you come around and say, oh, he's sleeping. His pain must be controlled. I'll check him again. And then by that point, he will be at a whole nother range of pain because he's just been post-op under eight hours and, and the dosing is not regularly scheduled. It's regularly offered, but if he's not asking for it, you know, it doesn't get given. So, I mean, as a family, we put things in place. Like my, my, my mom stays with him to be his advocate the entire time because he's going to sleep because he needs it. It's his rest and he's healing. But oftentimes, and even with discharge, you know, just, it's just not, like you said, they're not listening. And if you don't kind of look like the picture of pain, then you don't get heard. And he's not going to look like that picture of pain because he's lived with chronic pain, this chronic diagnosis that's ultra rare. And you can't imagine what, what level of pain he lives in on a daily basis. So if he's telling you about it, he means it. And it's, it's the same. I, it makes me think this is going a little bit off subject, but it makes me think about with my children um, when they're in school and when we talk to teachers, we tell the, I tell the teachers, I talk to them personally before school starts. And I just say, I just need you to hear my son. You know, kids, they fib, they want to leave the classroom. They want to go to the nurse's office. They don't want your math class. They do those things. I said, but what I, all I need you to know is that I'm not here for the blame game. I just need you to know that you're going to listen when my son says, I need to see the nurse. I need to call my mother because you won't have a problem with me unless he says, I told her and I went in the hallway and they sent me to the office and I'm calling you. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just, and we just want to be heard. People, people with chronic health issues just want to be heard. Period. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm happy that you kind of get, 
we are going off topic in a bit and sure. I, I have my questions in front of me, but I'm so intrigued into your story. I'm even just going to like throw some random ones your way. Okay. Um, what are your, what, what advice would you have to a parent? I mean, again, this has been part of your entire life and your right. legacy. What advice would you have to a parent who is just finds themselves, boom, their world has changed. They brought a life into this world that has a bleeding disorder. I think, I think faith is number one and support is important. Um, I don't know about if you if you're okay with me plugging certain programs that that have helped me. That would be my that was my um, next question to you as well. Like what <laughs> if, if to that parent who's listening, who do they turn to? What resources would you sure, recommend, please? Sure. So to me, your local chat your, your local chapter um, has representatives, executive directors that are there. They can give you resources, point you in the right direction. Your hemophilia treatment center, um, they're instrumental. They they all feel like family to me. I feel like just like a parent would call, if you have a healthy child and you go to the pediatrician because, hey, this symptom's going on, I don't know if I need to come in today or if we can push it till tomorrow morning, you would call and just leave a message. And that is how I feel about our HTC and our chapter. They are our resources. I feel like also with the national chapter, um, I was part of one of the original parents that started the First Steps program. NHF, you know, definitely helped that program evolve 150%. And and for me, being a part of that was so important because I always compare it to a book, What to Expect When Expecting. You read that book when you're pregnant and you're expecting a baby. And then if you find out you're having a child with a chronic health issue, you need that same kind of guidance. You need that same kind of support. You're still having a healthy baby just with a chronic bleeding disorder. And you need that same kind of support. And to me, that's what First Steps is. You know, Steps for Living, the First Steps program. Those are important to help guide you through the different steps so you know and you see, you meet other parents, you meet other children, growing, toddlers, being toddlers, learning, you know, I always tell them, uh, you know, I think as new parents, we all go through it where my oldest, he might have had on knee pads and helmet, and then he thought he was invincible, so he flew <laughs> off of every couch and slid down the hallway all the time. So we had to take that off and let him learn. No, you you can have some owies too. Mm-hmm. So the bleeding disorders programs in the hospitals, those nurses, those supports there are also available. Um, there is another book by Lori Kelly. Um and I, I think she just, re, you know, updates the copyright on those and gets the latest information. Um, what's the name of that book? Raising a Child with Hemophilia. Okay. I'm dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't age that, now. It's all good. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But that was, that was a book. Um, and a lot of her writings, you know, helped guide me. And you can, and I, and I had a, I went to events Um, I started off going to just a few events, but I met another mother when I I think our son was a baby. He was a baby, but I met another woman of color and she had four sons that were severe and they were, they're probably not quite 10 years older. Like the younger ones are like not quite 10 years older than my baby when my son was a baby. And, and she was going through the one wants to do a sock, wants to play soccer, one wants to play football. She did have a mild in there, but everybody else was severe. Um, and then somebody else wanted to like ride skateboard. And I was like, Oh my goodness. But they were all happy to, you know, and she was, 
appeared just as even keel. But if something happened in my house, we had exchange numbers. I would just call her. This is, you know, so long ago, but I would just call her and say, hey, this is what's going on in my house. Is that normal? <laughs> like, I'm ready to just sit on this child with this bottle full of energy. And she's like, he's good. Send him outside, yeah. you know. So we all need that as as moms, parents, caregivers of children that are healthy and children with chronic health conditions. Let's dive deeper into that because I'm curious. I'm hearing the circle of moms and the circle of parents. Let's talk about the circle of kids. Did your boys find community? Um, did they find like their their niche, their tribe, their their people? Totally. Did they find that totally. within the community space? Tell us about that. They totally did find their niche <laughs> um, and that they're still friends with to this day. Um, obviously, we're, as you can tell, not shy parents. Um, and so my husband also is an advocate. And um, so we just always went to different events. And the children grew up with other children that have different bleeding disorders. They're all in the same different levels as far as moving on to, to employment, moving on to college getting jobs. So they have their peers that they have been growing up with. And even my my 13-year-old, the same thing. I think camp helps that as well, promote that independence. For me as a mom, I know it did because I did not um, promote independence well with my oldest <laughs> initially. But even between the two, my, because of the age difference, they can both see you know, the difference in how we've evolved as parents. And they've evolved even even when my oldest was in middle school and our middle schooler, you know, just just in the thinking and in the treatment, you know, mm -hmm. the treatment has changed. I mean, how cool is it that so my my dad and my oldest were on um, on demand. That's our personal choice at the time. They were on on demand. And then I had uh, I went to a meeting and a provider said, your child never has to bleed. I said, you're exactly right. And we switched to Profi, mm -hmm. dad, my dad included. And then um, and then there are just other treatments that are different and new. And, you know, the world is ever evolving. So it's it's amazing. Talk it's an amazing us, time. Talk to us about, um, it sounds like your dad is, is, a, is a true pioneer when it comes, you mentioned he, he's done some, been responsible for some legislation. Um, yes. Talk to us about uh, an important milestone that stands out to you from his, his career in the community. Um, well, I, I just think being present, he's, mm -hmm. he's a great talker. And so he will be on anybody's panel to talk about the history of what it used to be and how it's evolved and, and how you have to have an open mind to evolving. Um, gosh, I, I mean, I think about when I think about legislation, I think about how working in the state of Virginia, um, having a state job, there is no caps. And he was part of that legislation. Mm -hmm. I think about the impact of Ricky Ray. I think about, um, I just think about him being here to tell my kids, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how lucky you have it. Yeah. Or, or even just, just the things that you know, there's always modern medicine, but then he'll just say, like, my son had a dental, my little one had a dental surgery, and he's like, here, I'm going to need you to eat these chips. Guess what? 
made the clot, stopped the bleeding, yeah. bumped the meds. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not condoning that for everything, but in this circumstance, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there's just wisdom in time. Let's let's dive deeper into that. One, one of my, personally, um, I cha- my grandfather passed away many, many years ago, but I oh, cherish memories sorry. with him. Thank you. To this day, mm-hmm. um, do you talk to us about the relationship between your father and your boys? Like they they have you as like, of course the common link, but there's there's another. They're they're blood brothers and blood family. Right. Really, what's right. what's that relationship like to have lit a literal mentor who has lived the life you're going to live? Like talk to us about that. It is irreplaceable. It is irreplaceable. Their bond is unbreakable. Um, they will definitely go cop pop pop, go over pop pop's house <laughs> before they come home. We we literally um, move close by walking distance um, because the support for each other is important, and to see each other every day is important. Um, e- even just now, my my oldest just came literally came in the door at four from college. My well, I just brought dad home from the hospital and he is like sitting on his bed like, hey, and so about this truck, um, you're going to be straight till June because we're going to a car show in Jersey and you ride, you know, it's it's that kind of bond. Like, it's just irreplaceable. Um, well, as we wind things down um, for the interview, I'll, I'll have two more questions for you. Um, sure. The last, the, the second to last is, um, what do you want to be remembered for? Like, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, I just want my legacy to be that I've been a representative for anybody else that didn't have a voice. Um, and then just to make sure that people know that your one voice is totally important. What you have to say is important. You're always the advocate and you do know best. And my last question for you, to the, the, the young man, young woman who is a, is a person of color who is new, you know, new to the bleeding disorders community, mm-hmm. um, who may feel lost. And, and oftentimes we realize that these interviews are, are the catalyst for people to dive into more and realize like they, are, they aren't as alone as they think. What advice do you have to that young person of color specifically? I mean, really anybody, but you know. In the honor of Black right. History Month, I really want to talk to you know, people that look like us. What advice do you have to, to that young woman, that young man of color who, who finds themselves looking for, for community? Uh, I really want to say it's hard to take that step to come to some of the meetings, um, some of the support groups. It feels like that's not something you might be interested in. But I say go ahead and go. Go ahead and go and, and mingle. And just keep your ears open. Be open to a new friend. Uh, I also say open your minds to research as well because that's a rare um, part of the community that does not have a good representation of the brown black population. Um, So with that said, if it wasn't for the people before us and not just my father, um, but anyone that was before us that also just led the way was open, like you said, to be in the pioneer, to be in the first person. Um, if it wasn't for them, where would we be? Where would we be? And um, I say that to also say that even when my father was a young child and he did not grow up um, 
He grew up in the city. He was open, even at a young age, and his mother was open, to be that person, be the test case for other people with bleeding disorders. So they tested it against him to see if they had a bleeding disorder before there was a name for this diagnosis. He came to the state that we're in in the summers to be on the farm with his grandparents. And he had an incident twice, him in an apple tree and a broke arm. And he went to the hospital that we go to now, that is a HTC. And one of the pathologists there was a man that we got to know and love, diagnosed my dad at two years old while he was also diagnosing his grandfather, who just treated bleeding disorders with rolling tobacco. So the people before us, you know, they're everyday people. There's some that people know their name of, but some that, you know, they're local. I call them local heroes, or my husband calls them local ambassadors, and they're everywhere. And doing this podcast, I do appreciate you all for taking this moment to speak with the local me, um, because it is the local ambassadors that, that need to have this opportunity so others can learn and hear about it. So I thank you all for taking this moment to speak with me. And we thank you for taking the moment to speak with us as well. The work that you're doing, and I, I, would, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to be your life's work. It has been ingrained into every aspect of your life since inception. So I thank you for taking the time to speak with us, speak with our audience, and we certainly look forward to talking to you again. Maury, thank you very yes. much. Thank you. You're so welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Amy Board. You ever have one of those moments where you almost make a decision to do something and then don't, but then spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, if only I'd gone down that road or, wow, can you imagine if I had and sort of build out this whole alternate reality where if only if you had, if this didn't, ever spend a lot of time in those sort of headspaces, Amy Board? Yeah, duh, well, duh. <laughs> I got great news for you. Today's Let's Talk segment with Joshua Sterling Bragg is just for you mm. and me and anyone and anyone who has ever spent a little bit of time in the almost not what happened but the almost what happened that is the subject of today's let's talk let's talk is a partnership between bloodstream media and Santa Fe, and it aims to create an environment where we can have honest and open conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorders community. Let's Talk strives to shed light on the topics that are often invisible and not spoken of in the community and shares tips on how to care for your or a loved one's mental health. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your health care provider and find educational resources at letstalkmh.com. Sanofi is proud to sponsor this podcast segment because they believe that each of us has a story. Which we were just talking about. It's so true. It's incredible. Anyway, visit shareyourwhy.com to meet the Santa Fe core team and hear from them and members of the community about their story and passion for the hemophilia community. And now let's get to living in the almost with Joshua Sterling Bragg. It's a Sunday afternoon, mid-December, and I'm strapped into a side-by-side off-road vehicle barreling through the deserts of Arizona. The four-way seatbelt has me strapped in like a fighter jet pilot, my gloved hands gripping the oh-no bar at the back of the seat in front of me, while next to me, my wife shouts, I don't like it, I don't like it, over the crackle and growl of the engine that's in the trunk. Tears stream out of my eyes from the wind that is chapping my cheeks and nose. 
We're only going 60, my mother-in-law's boyfriend shouts from the driver's seat. We hit a trench that pops our butts out of the seats and with grinning eyes protected behind his racing goggles, Alan jerks the wheel left and then right again as we pop onto two side wheels and I feel my spirit leave my body. This is the end, I thought. This is how I die. Let's talk. There's going to be one day where the first inhale that you took when you came out of the womb and showed up in the world, there is a partner to that inhale that is the very last exhale you will ever give. And then you're like, oh, right. That's a reality of what this Everyone, is. Of every single person. And we almost can, we can like, we just rail against the thought that like, yeah, everyone else does it, but not me. Yeah. This is Heather and Carter speaking. They have a project called Death Differently that approaches death in a positive way. But it is wild. And that, that pairing of the breath to me is like one of the most beautiful things that every, every inhale has a companionate exhale. And the only time you are able to meet that first one is really in that last part. And the relationship between birth and death that is invariably braided together, you know? So it is kind of like this beautiful circle and it's also like ridiculous and super annoying that we die. <laughs> so I lied earlier. A lot more went through my mind than just, this is how I die. In the mere fractions of seconds that we were on the two left wheels of the side-by-side, a whole lot happened. I felt a rush of excitement, followed by a moment of realization as my eyes met Alan's in the rear view mirror that this was not normal for an outing in the desert. Alan had taken the younger kids earlier that morning and then the parents that afternoon. We were his third trip of the day, Courtney, our niece, Emily, and I. And I suspected Alan was seeking fresh excitement and might have pushed a bit too far. I heard a news anchor in my mind's ear. Three adults and one child were found dead this afternoon in a tragic off-road accident outside a local retirement neighborhood in Arizona. I looked at my wife, who looked like she was going to puke. I saw a white dog in a neighbor's yard who was too shocked to even bark at us. This was it. I saw the cloudless sky tilting like a Dutch angle in a horror movie. We were going to roll, and our heads were going to be showered in desert rocks and cacti. And then, just like that... We slammed back down on all four wheels and skid to a stop. Alan barely took a second before heading back on the trail, hoping perhaps that we were all in agreement that nothing dangerous had just happened. So we finished the tour, made a few jokes about taking another loop just for fun, and headed back to the rest of the family to continue Christmas festivities. Once Courtney and her niece were back inside, I asked Alan, were we just on two wheels back there? Uh, I'm not sure. I paused. Have you ever had that happen before, Alan? I asked. Can't say that I have, he said with a knowing blush. We were fine. And to be honest, right then and there, I don't think we had all processed what happened in those two seconds. And I still don't know how close we actually were to flipping and how dangerous that would have actually been. I mean, these kinds of vehicles are made for extreme circumstances and have roll bars to protect the people inside. But what I can say is it's the most dangerous thing I've done in very many years, many, 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 many years. And, and I loved it. Not to the extent of ever wanting to skydive or bungee jump. It didn't turn on anything inside of me that would make me want to live in a Mad Max Fury Road fantasy out there in Arizona like Alan is. But it did give me a rush that I truly enjoyed. After all, we had just lived a moment in the almost. 
we almost got hurt. And if we had, it would have been a really terrible day for everyone. But we weren't living in the after. We were living in the almost. And living in the almost feels really good, right? Like, how great does it feel to almost miss your flight? To almost get in an accident? To almost lose your dog or almost forget about a meetup with a friend? There's a moment of chaos followed by a rush of relief. And relief can kind of be like a drug. So what if we could trick that into our system? What if, for example, we could acknowledge a dark thought that pops into our minds? Let me give you an example. I find myself thinking all the time, I wish it was thinner. If I only was thinner, I could wear these clothes I want to wear and people would respect me more. I don't know. I know I shouldn't think that way. I shouldn't obsess over my weight, but I do a lot. But wait, so then what if before I obsess over it, I take action. Instead of rolling out of control into rocks and cacti, which really is the plural of cactus, of insecurity and self-deprivation, what if I jerk the wheel to the right and land back on four wheels? What if I say, you know what? I am the size that I am today. I can't snap my fingers and change that. And if I want to make a change, I can. I can start by making some good choices today. To start off, I'm gonna pick out an outfit that I feel really great in because oftentimes if I look great, I feel great or at least better. Then later, I'm gonna focus on eating food that will make me feel good and energized. Maybe it's a long shoot day and I know I won't get additional exercise because of my schedule. So instead of scarfing a burger and fries for dinner as a reward for working hard, I order a hearty salad with some fried chicken on top. I still get that dopamine hit of eating a large portion and having fried food, but I balance that with tons of interesting and flavorful veggies. Later in the week, when I have a normal day, I can get some exercise because I know that I need it. And what I won't do is wear an outfit that's oversized and lousy looking, and I won't punish myself for not going to the gym on a shoot day because shoot days are hard and exhausting and deserve to be followed by rest. Easier said than done, I know. But you know what? I have gray in my beard now. Plenty of it. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I'm more like an autumn brown bear, if we're being honest. And although it feels quite appropriate to eat a whole bunch and hibernate, that's not really what my body needs. It needs respect. It needs lower cholesterol. It needs more cardio. And honest to goodness, it needs to shed about 10, 15 pounds because I can feel my bad knee straining and I, I don't like that. Everyone's journey is completely different, and I'm no professional. I'm just a guy who loves to talk about this stuff going on in my own mental health journey. I hope this was helpful to listen to. I find talking can be so healing. If you are on your own mental health journey and are looking for a place to start, check out letstalkmh.com and click resources. And as for us, let's talk next month. Thank you once again, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and thank you, Mirai. Thank you, James. Thank you all for contributing to today's episode of the Bloodstream Podcast. And of course, this episode would not be possible without our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Visit BelievingDisorders.com to learn more. Amy Board, February 28th, in addition to being Rare Disease Day, is the last day of February, at least this year. So that means we're moving into March, and we'll be March. back on the 10th. What do we have in store for listeners on March 10th? March 10th, we have... Um bloodstream frequent guest, Brendan Hayes, mm. who works in the education department at the National Hemophilia Foundation, and her co-worker, Heather Hicks. The two of them have a lovely conversation with me about a brand new program Ooh. that NHF is uh, developing, and it's very cool. It has apps, phone <laughs> apps very... involved. Wow. Wow. No, it's Coming it's a long way. very it's very cool and I'm just teasing it cuz uh it's it's 
I, I think it's very cool. They got apps. They well, got apps. What will they think of next? How many NHF programs have apps? Great question. Paul, if you have an answer, mailbag at. <laughs> uh, so March 10th, come hear about the apps and more from Heather and Brendan. And with that, that is all for this episode. As always, remember to subscribe, listen to, and share episodes from The Bloodstream Podcast with friends, family, colleagues, or even people you've just met. You can also use mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for our podcast or Believe Limited's films. Are we casting anything? We are casting everything. Oh, everything. Okay. We just want to know your story, and uh, we'll place you where we think you can be used best. So please reach out to us or me, literally on social media, or Patrick, literally, literally. on social media. Yeah, or bloodstream it. media. It's up to you. Your choice, free will. I <laughs> am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your other host, Amy Ford. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Happy Rare Disease Day. Yay! <laughs>